0: jcasnetwork.org. Hello, it's time for another Daily Doc. This is Jeremy Komonowski, and today we're studying tractate Sahim, page Yudalit, or page 14. We're going to enter into a series of pages focused on the difficult topic of uh, ritual impurity. To understand this would require a great deal of background. I'm not going to give you the full background uh, regarding ritual impurity, but I hope to, to raise some salient points that are interesting, I hope, in a historical, and a philosophical way. I'll read you the Mishnah that we're going to discuss, and and then explain it in ways that I hope will be interesting to you. Uh, we are on the sixth Mishnah of the first chapter of Sachim, and it notes that Rabbi Hanina Sagan HaKohanim, Rabbi Hanina, the deputy priest, Homer, he says, From the entire days of the priesthood, from the entire days of the hatuma." The the priests when they would when they had to destroy ritually impure meat would destroy both the uh, the minor level of impurity with the major level of impurity, two different pieces with one with a minor, one with a major level of impurity, even though that, that would inadvertently or inevitably cause the minor piece to acquire an even greater impurity by touching touching the the, the, the more severely impurified piece. Rabbi Akiva goes on and makes a similar point about the destruction of uh, of ritually minorly ritually impure oil in a lamp that had a higher level of impurity. Rabbi Meir will go on and say that, as applies to the eve of Passover, uh, one need not separate out uh, ritually pure food, ritually pure hametz food from ritually impure hametz food. One can destroy both of them together, even though you inadvertently or inevitably it, uh, impart impurity to what was immediately before that uh, pure food now the presence of a discussion like this uh, in the mishnah is itself interesting to talk about pure and impure food and and what the priests did in the temple when was the mishnah written okay the the named sages live who are quoted in the mishnah quoted by name some of them live Roughly in the years surrounding the destruction of the temple up until the Bar Kokhba rebellion in, in the 130s, roughly the year, the end of the first, beginning of the second century. The majority of them, however, live in the middle of the second century, around the time of the Bar Kokhba rebellion and later, from about 130 to about 200. This text is composed uh, in, in an era when not only had the temple been destroyed the first time but a major revolt to try to reassert Jewish sovereignty and to rebuild the temple was not only defeated it was crushed it was completely crushed rabbinic civilization the nascent rabbinic uh, culture was suffering very significantly Jews were barred from Jerusalem the temple was not only left destroyed it was plowed under Uh, and this was a very terrible time for, for this young rabbinic civilization uh, as they as tried to progress. Now, uh, the Mishnah, though it lives in a post-temple era, is incredibly focused on what went on in the temple. You will often hear people say that the rabbis put together a new Judaism that, uh, that would, would survive after the temple, and I guess in a certain sense that's true, but you have to put a big asterisk on that and realize that the Mishnah itself Is hugely focused. Maybe maybe 35, 40, 50% of it is tied to a description of ritual purity, of sacrifices, of what went on in the temple in various times. And because it is written now, you know, decades after the temple was destroyed, the truth is that the rabbis have, the rabbis of the Mishnah, have uh, no direct access to what happened. They didn't see it, for the most part. Um, And you can't really think that they are closely reporting uh, quote-unquote historical facts. And that's even more true of the Babylonian rabbis and the later Palestinian rabbis who were dozens and dozens and even hundreds of years after after the destruction of the temple. They're not reporting what they know as a historical fact that happened. What they're doing is, is a kind of an imaginative reconstruction. So I, I don't think they're making it up, but they're reading the Torah text, they have fragments of their own traditions, and they are trying to make something that is inaccessible come alive for, for themselves and their religious communities. By the way, I think that's exactly what all religious communities do. I think that's what you know what I do when we read the Torah, what, what my communities do, we, we get to try to experience some uh, alive access to what is past. So a mm-hmm. missioner like ours. Uh, we quote Rabbi Hanina Skan Hakoanim, who's a very old rabbinic figure. He is supposed to have been the deputy high priest when, the, you know, right around the time the temple was destroyed. So he ostensibly is reporting something that happened in those days. Uh, you know, one, one can be a little bit skeptical about a text written in 200 uh, quoting an oral tradition of somebody who lived more than a century before that about what happened, You one can be skeptical if it's an, if it's an entirely accurate viewpoint. But we know that the other voices, Rabbi Akiva in our Mishnah, Rabbi Meir, they never saw the temple. So, so what we have not, is not a report of the, the temple functioning, but we have is an imaginative reconstruction of the temple functioning. And in Rabbi Meir's case, an application from a temple law. To what uh, to what Jews in his own day would do. Now, a word about purity and impurity. These are uh, these are clearly charged concepts that any that any person would have reactions to, to, to call something pure or impure. What what does it mean exactly? Uh, I think that it's helpful to distinguish between what is seen as a ritually impure fact and a morally impure judgment. Uh, borrowing from a, from a contemporary scholar of ancient Judaism called Jonathan Kowans at Boston University, who says, you know, you can't confuse what the Torah and the rabbis talk about, ritual impurity. You touch a carcass of an animal, you menstruate, you have a child, you have a seminal emission, you have a kind of uh, physical fact, so to speak, of ritual of ritual impurity that affects your ability to enter the temple. Again, an imaginative reconstruction that it affects your ability to uh, eat certain kinds of sanctified foods. But it doesn't mean you're, you've done something wrong. There's nothing wrong with having a child. There's nothing wrong with any number of bodily functions. But it does have a consequence of your ability to participate in ritual. And to distinguish that between, with, from a kind of metaphoric or extended use of the term impure, which is a moral judgment, I think that in a case like, like we're talking about now in our Mishnah, to talk about impure food, is not to suggest that it's bad or dirty just that it is under the class of, of uh, you know determined status that that when it when something touches the nexus points of life and death like bodily emissions comes near a dead body a birth child something like that uh, the nexus points of life and death create ritual impurity but it doesn't mean they're bad uh, it does in fact it's often very good so um, this is uh, an application of that imagined past to the uh, present times, in which rabbis like Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Meir living in the middle of the 2nd century uh, marked their own Passover days. All right, thanks for studying the page with me today, and uh, look forward to studying with you again in the future. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daff Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros. From the Epic album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.